Father God, to your name be the glory, the power, the majesty, the dominion, everything on heaven and earth is yours, and you are exalted as Lord over all. Jesus. You are the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, for by you all things were created, things in heaven and things on earth, all these things were created by you and for you and in you all things hold together and you are the head of the church. Holy Spirit, you are the seal that was given to us at conversion to seal our redemption. You are the promise of things to come. You are the center, the fire, the reason for the church. You are the wind, the breath, the fire. Now this night belongs to you. In Jesus' name, let the church say, Amen. Boy, you can be seated. Thank you. I will uh, read the text in a moment, but if you'll allow me, I want to set it up again. You'll know when it's time to stand. The text has become for me something like a north star. If you're like me, the last few years have just got you all confused. If you're a leader of anything, it has you confused. But if you're leading churches especially, it's, it's hard to assess what has happened to us in the last few years we were talking about this as ministers this afternoon. We not only lost about 27 to 30% of our congregation, 27% of all regular attenders have said they have no plans for coming back. We were also surprised at who it was that has not come back. We were sure that there were some with us that we're no longer with us. In the midst of this great winnowing, we noticed that the convictions of the church changed. The arguments were no longer theological in nature. They were behavioral. They were about masks and vaccines. And in my country, they were about elections they were about convictions that people were throwing back and forth. And we were losing friends. There were people who were with us. We thought they were friends, but when we came on the wrong side of an issue, suddenly the friendship, the bond of the friendship couldn't hold. Loyalties were shaken to the deepest core over things we never dreamed we would argue about. 
fumbling through the New Testament in the morning, says, is my nature new and old? I haven't found a third one yet, so. I came upon this passage that Paul wrote to the church in Philippi, where he defined what for me became a North Star. I, I grew up in a church that made such a big deal out of getting people saved. And I was, I was just never any good at that. That's a confession. And I had a problem with it. Because the dominant language was about receiving Christ and accepting Christ. And while that seems noble on the surface, it, you, you guys, it just didn't seem to jive with what I was reading in the New Testament. Jesus seemed never to care if people accepted him. He talked about denying oneself, giving up his life in following Christ. He talked about turning our backs on our mother, father, brother, sister. He redefined family for us. He talked about selling all we have, giving to the poor, and then following him. And when I get into Paul's epistles, Paul's language is just vivid. Paul speaks about being united with Christ, about being found in Christ. He talks about being crucified with Christ, about being raised with Christ. He talks about Christ being fully formed in you. He says in Colossians chapter 3, and on that day when Christ, who is your life, shall appear. <laughs> he seemed to say, you don't even have a life apart from Christ. When Christ, who is your life, shall appear, you also will appear with him in glory. I remembered that about two times in the New Testament, it is said that Christ is in us, and over 30 times in the New Testament, it is said that we are in Christ. So it's not so much about Christ being in us, it is more about us being in Christ. And you say, well, what difference does it make? Well, it makes all the difference in the world because it means we don't accept him. He has to accept us. It means that he doesn't come into our life and make it better. It means he absorbs us into his life. He defines us by his life. His life is the way we talk about our own lives. Now, either I'm overstating the case. Maybe I'm reading into all of these Paul. And some of you are like, well, you just must cherry pick. Dude, if you got the time, I will unload a litany of passages from the New Testament that I've sort of been saving up. <laughs> that speak about the purpose of salvation being 
union with Christ. <laughs> hmm. Father, may they be one as we are one. I in them, you in me. That's perichoresis in theology. It means an interpenetration of two personalities. May my personality be in them and may their personalities be absorbed into me so that the world may know that you love them as much as you love me. Now maybe I'm misinterpreting all of these passages, but that seems to me to be far beyond accepting Christ. Maybe. Oh, now it's quiet in here. Now I know some of you are like, man, you just diss everything. This has only changed in the last 200 years. It was only in the last 200 years, and it was only when the Americans got hold of the gospel that these things started to happen. So I'm not really dissing anything that's historic. I'm, in fact, trying to call the church back to the history. Now, now the text. Philippians chapter 3. Now you will hear the language of Paul in Philippians chapter 3. Finally, my brothers and sisters, verse 1. Rejoice in the Lord. It's no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it's a safeguard for you. Watch out for the dogs. These are the men who do evil. They mutilate the flesh, for it is we who are circumcised. It is we who worship by the Spirit of God. It is we who glory in Christ Jesus. It is we who put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have plenty of reason. If anyone thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have even more. I was circumcised on the eighth day, of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, Hebrew of Hebrews, in regards to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal, I persecuted the church. As for legalistic righteousness, I was flawless. But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ. Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things, I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and to be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from law, no, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes by God, and it is by faith. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, becoming like 
Christ in his death and so somehow to attain his resurrection from the dead. Not that I've obtained all of these things or I've already been made perfect. No, no. I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus has taken hold of me. The word of the Lord. You can be seated. While I was wrestling through this, a friend of mine, Dave Smith, if you don't know him, you should, well, you, there's too many of you to know him, but he's a really sharp guy. He uh, reads every, everything Dave tells me to read, I read. And one time he sent me an article by Paul Hebert, and it gave me language for what I want to talk about uh, tonight in this idea of knowing Christ and keeping our churches and our own faith centered in Christ. In this two or three page article, Paul Hebert defined two kinds of communities, what he called a bounded community and what he called a centered community. By the way, can you see that? Man, I worried about this. Oh, there you go, right there. (laughs) A bounded community is any community that is defined by the similarities the people have to one another. He talked about species, tribes, teams, animals, vegetation. When something bears a semblance to other things in its class, it becomes a bounded community. And so a bounded community is defined by the things that are inside of it and the things that are outside of it. Are you tracking? Anything inside of the circle is the community. Anything outside of the circle is not in the community. Once a person gets in the community, they are never more or less a part of the community, never more or less what they were. Once an apple is an apple, it is never less than an apple. It might be a different size. It may or may not be tasty or edible, but it never changes species. It remains what it is no matter what. But a centered community is determined by defining not similarities between the people in it, but by defining the center itself and by defining one's relationship to that center. So when the definition changes, you're no longer looking at how are we like one another, now you're looking at how are we like or not like the center. Are you still tracking? Oh, I'm losing you, I can tell. Well, here's where it gets dicey. Because if things are defined by the center, then they are defined by one's relationship to the center. That means you could have some people that are close to the center and they are in relationship with the center, but you could have other people who live just as close to the center, but they are not in relationship with them. So now all of these people who were once in the community are defined by their direction. They're not defined 
by how like they are to one another. And that's also true for people that are out here. You could have people that do not feel like they belong in the community, but they have a relationship with the center. And there are other people out here who do not have a relationship with the center. Are you still tracking? Oh, good. I can't say all that again. (laughs) So what this means... This starts to bring color to how it is Jesus could eat with tax collectors and prostitutes and he could fight with religious people. The religious people were closer to all of the information, but their hearts were turned away from the center while there were tax collectors and prostitutes and people that were demon-possessed who met him for the first time. And when they saw him, there was something about him they could not resist. And Jesus built his church on people that have a relationship with him, not on people that are like one another. Now are you tracking with me? Because we are starting to light the fuse. This means that a church may begin as a centered community founded on Jesus Christ. But unless that church talks about Christ and defines Christ again and again and again to its people, that church will evolve into a bounded community. They will stop defining themselves by the center and start defining themselves by their similarities to one another. And whenever that happens, that church begins to be guided by a small set of principles, rituals, traditions, rules, practices, assumptions, colloquialism, things you got to do in order to get inside the community. So it is lined, the boundaries are lined with all sorts of practices that are unique to that church. And to get into it, you have to pass a series of watchdogs, pit bulls. It's people who know the rules and they know all of the the cliches and they make sure that we don't let any of these people that are out here in because if we do, they're going to contaminate the community. Are you still there? When a church loses its sense of who the center is, it will begin a death spiral they will begin to lose their identity. 
And when a church loses its identity, the first thing they do is to close the border. So we don't let any of those other people in because they're going to wreck our community. They start guarding the rules. They start establishing more traditions. Their instructions become granular and legalistic and their language becomes sharp and jagged and judgmental. And this will last for a while until their children get older and start accusing their daddies and mommies about being judgmental and phobic and domineering and intimidating. Say, you guys are bigoted. You have all of these fear of people letting people into our blessed church. Dad gummit, we're gonna, that's swearing if you're Christian, we're gonna. <laughs> we're gonna open the borders and we're gonna let people in to this community to prove that God loves them all. But now here's the opposite mistake. The mistake the next generation will do is they will open the borders, but they will never redefine the center. And so now you have all of these people coming in through these open borders that you've created in the name of love for your church. And because you've not redefined the center, they start finding each other in your church and you start a bunch of special interest groups. This is just theory. It never really happens. <laughs> and all of a sudden, you have all of these people in your church who are talking about justice and about race and about freedom and about abortion and about sexuality and gender. And you're sitting in your church thinking, how is it that these people are far more uh, careful in their nuance about sexuality than they are about Jesus? Well, the answer is, hey, nobody ever really defined Jesus for about 30 years. And so they've been discipled by the culture. And now they've come into your church, they have found special interest groups, and if I were a physician, I would say, this is what you call cancer. Now we have opened up our church in the name of love. Everyone can come in, they can find one another, they create special interest groups. And now, the only villain is the person who still believes there is a center. <laughs> they still believe Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And that no one 
can call him father except through Christ. They believe he is the image of the invisible God. Now there are new victims in the name of justice. You're quiet. You say, this sounds like a TED talk. Now to the text. Israel started as a centered community. Israel did not start with the law. Israel started with a voice. A voice speaking to a man making a bold promise. Go to a land I will show you and I will make you into a great nation and I will bless the earth because of you. Let's be clear about this. In the center of Israel's religion was not a book. It was a voice, a presence, a personality. And that person or that personality appeared to Abraham. And then he appeared to Isaac. And then he stood at the top of a ladder in Jacob's psalm. And then he talked out of a bush and Moses heard him. And then he led the children of Israel in the fire and in the cloud. It was always a presence. It was always a person. The book came later. It was in Moses' day that God gave Israel the book, the book of the covenant, Exodus 21 through 23. And in the book of the covenant, all Yahweh was doing was defining for Israel what kind of a person he was. The reason the law existed was to define the person. And what happened to Israel was they started losing touch with the person and they started focusing on the laws. And the more they focused on the laws, they defined themselves not by their relationship to the center, but by their distance from people who were not in the center. And when they do that, they start creating a handful of laws that define who is in and who is out. And one of those is about circumcision, and one of those is about the Sabbath, and one of those is about obeying all of the Torah. Are you listening? And what happened was Israel took those three stipulations and they used them as boundary protectors. And then what Paul called mutilators of the flesh or the dogs, the ones who were there to guard the boundary and make sure that if anyone is in this community, they have the mark of circumcision. And that's how we know you're in. We don't know anything about your relationship to the center. We just know you're circumcised, you're in. And right now, before you get too condescending, 
on Israel's religion, you look at our own. We also have a small set of practices that we use to define getting in. And those practices are good in and of themselves. But over time, we start focusing on the practices and we forget that person's relationship with Christ the center. We believe that if a person prays this prayer and says these words, they are on the authority of scripture, born into the family of God. That's a practice. You say, wait a minute. You don't believe that? Of course not. The Apostle Paul's one definition of what it is to be a Christian is this. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of God is none of his. Paul does not come talking about steps and procedures for entering into the kingdom of God. He talks about a relationship with the one who is the center. We are united in Christ. We are crucified with Christ. We are raised with Christ. Christ is fully formed in us. If we have the spirit of God, we belong to him. If we do not, we are none of his. Mm. Mm, I wish I was going home tonight and I'm going to hear it from you. You're going to be mad. Listen. (laughs) You can write an email if you want. Peter dot more <laughs> Brother, I don't think I'm saying anything you would not say. Keep preaching, brother. All right. So Paul grows up in this tradition. He grows up in the tradition that is meticulous about the law. And that's why Paul says that he was born a Israelite of the proper tribe. He talks about being a Hebrew of Hebrews. In pertaining to my zeal, I was a Pharisee. That's like saying I was a member of the conservative party. Paul is giving us a list of his accolades. And then, in a moment, he shifts. And he says, all of these things, all of this this stuff on my resume, and let's be careful about this. Paul is not saying that the stuff on the resume is not important. It is important. He's just saying that no longer defines me. He says, I am trading all of that in so that I may be found in Christ. I need to gain Christ. Christ. 
It's not that I'm going to give up all of these things. I can't. I was born these things. I will remain these things. But I will no longer define myself by these things. I am defined by the distance between me and Christ the center. And do you know why he said this? Because one day he was riding on a horse on the road to Damascus. He was going to persecute Christians. And all of a sudden, the bright light from the sky knocked him off of his horse and it blinded blinded him and he heard a voice from heaven say Saul Saul that's my that's my invitation it said Saul Saul why do you persecute me and what did Saul say who are you what you are a hebrew of hebrews a zealot for God, and God shows up, and you don't know who he is. That is the moment in Paul's life when he realizes he had lost touch with the center. He had become a bounded man defined by all of the protocol and not defined by his relationship with the center. Who are you? And the Lord changed his life. And when he changed his life, he reoriented Paul around himself. And this is what I came to tell you. Church, in the Wesleyan church and in your local churches, we have got to get back to a passion for Christ, the center. I am, hmm, calm down, boy. I wish. I wish I could have conversations with Christians about subjects that are social issues, and I wish I could hear them cite scriptural passages. I wish they would quote Jesus. Wish they were as eloquent and familiar with the sayings of Paul as they are with the tropes on social media. And I wish the things that divided us were arguments we were having over Christ. We have to get back to the center. And that means we have to keep talking about Christ. We have to keep redefining Christ to ourselves and to our people. When I say this, there's always a few loose cannons who say, that is right. All of these rules that we have in our church, we don't need these things. We just need a relationship with Christ. Because you're sick of the legalism, aren't you? A couple of things. I'm only talking to one or two of you, I know, but... But in front of your peers, may I point out a couple of things. Number one, 
those other things are still important. They just don't define you. That is not how you decide who you are. Your definition of liberal or conservative does not come from your position on these social issues. It comes from your standing in Jesus Christ. Change the definition, brother and sister. And number two, if you don't like all of the stipulations that your church puts on what it means to be a Christian, then go back to the center and start talking about his stipulations. Because it was not the Wesleyan church who said, if a man lusts in his heart, he has committed adultery. That was Jesus. And it was not the Wesleyans who said, if you have a grudge against another person and cannot forgive them, you virtually committed murder. No, no. That was Jesus. So if you think, if you think our rules are hard, wait till you run into the center and they will feel to you impossible. The Wesleyan church will tell you that you need to tithe. And while you're standing there and saying, well, how much exactly is tithe? That's a boundary question. Jesus will say, whatever you do in word, Deed, do it all to the name of the Father. We can argue about LGBT all we want. Do they belong in the circle or must they stay out of the circle? But Jesus of Nazareth will talk about a holy sexuality which by the way is a problem for heterosexuals too. This is not a problem that just one kind of person has. There are unholy thoughts. There's voyeurism. There's imaginary relationships and affairs that happen in people who are members of bounded communities. But in Jesus, We strive for a holy sexuality. Do you see what I mean? When you change the definition, all of the message is changed. The beautiful thing about this is church, when we begin to define ourselves according to Christ the center and no longer by the bounded community, we will seem to the world to be both more liberal and more conservative than they like. We are more liberal because we allow into our fellowship people that the world has pushed out. And the woman said to Jesus, how is it that you, a Jew, are speaking to me, a Samaritan? Your kind doesn't talk to my kind. And the Pharisees said to Jesus, how is it that your disciples can be picking grain on the Sabbath? And Jesus' response is that it's not about laws that govern the bounded community. It is about the relationship one has 
with the Father. So you will seem to some people to be more liberal than the church is comfortable with one moment. In the next moment, you will be too conservative because you will have a series of little rules that you follow and nobody else follows them. And the reason you have them is because you're trying to protect the passion that you have for Christ. It will be legal and other people can do it, but you know if you do it, it will dampen the fire. And when people find out about it, they will say, you're a legalist. You'll say, no, no, I'm not asking anybody else to do it. This is my rule because it's my relationship. few years ago, no, longer, I went to see a lady in our church, and I knocked on the door. She said, come on in. I walked in, and, and uh, she started talking, and as we were talking, about two minutes into the conversation, the phone rang. She said, oh, I got to get this. So she took the phone, and she walked into the kitchen and started talking on the phone, now I'm just walking through the living room like this, back and forth, waiting for her to return. And while I was pacing, I looked down on the couch, and I saw that her mail had come, and she'd set it on the couch. And she'd opened the letter that was on top, and she left it on top of the envelope. And so I read it. I am so glad I did. In that letter was a piece written by a man more than a hundred years ago. And it reads like this. You don't have to stand. If God has called you to be truly like Jesus... He will draw you into a life of crucifixion and humility. He will put on you such demands of obedience that you will not be allowed to follow other Christians. In many ways, he will seem to let other good people do things which he will not let you do. Others seem to be very religious. They can push themselves, pull wires, and pull schemes to carry out their plans. But you cannot, and if you try, you will be met with such failure and such rebuke from the Lord as to make you sorely penitent. Others can brag about themselves, their successes, their writings, but the Holy Spirit will not allow you to do any such thing. Others will be allowed to succeed in making great sums of money or have a legacy left to them or having luxuries, but God may supply you with only a day-to-day -day basis because God wants you to have something far better than gold, a helpless dependence on Him and on His unseen treasury. The 
the Lord may let others be honored and put them forward while he will keep you hidden in obscurity. God may let others be great, but keep you small. He will let others do a work for him and get the credit, and he will make you work without knowing how much you're doing. And then to make your work even more precious, he will let others get credit for the work that you're doing. The Holy Spirit will put a strict watch on you and with such jealous love and rebuke for careless words and feelings and wasting your time. And other Christians never seem to worry about this. So make up your mind that God is an infinite sovereign. He has the right to do as he pleases with his own. Settle it forever that you are to deal directly with the Holy Spirit. He is to have the privilege of tying your tongue or chaining your hands or closing your eyes in ways that others never deal with. However, you should know this, the great secret of the kingdom. When you are so completely possessed with the living God that you are in your secret heart, pleased and delighted over this peculiar and jealous guardianship, you will have found the vestibule of heaven. Oh, church, you belong to the center. Put away the petty arguments and convictions. Forget them. They do not define you. You are the people of God, a chosen nation, a holy priesthood, a people belonging to God. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So live such good lives among the pagans that even though they accuse you of doing evil things, they will see your good life and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Let the church say... Amen. We're going to sing a song. Are we going to sing a song? It is hotter than Dutch love up here, man. Hey, thank you.